Bill Lippman was elected to the 19th Knesset in January 2013, making him the first American-born MK in nearly 30 years. The author of eight books about Judaism in Israel, Rabbi Lippman holds rabbinic ordination from Ney Israel Rabbinical College and a master's in education from Johns Hopkins University. He moved to Israel from Silver Spring, Maryland in July 2004, and his wife, Dina, and four children. Since 2015, uh, former M.K. Lippmann has focused on Israel advocacy, both in Israel and abroad. He currently serves as senior manager, community outreach for honest reporting, as a political correspondent for the Jews, Jewish News Syndicate, JNS.org, as a political commentator for ILTV and I-24 News, and as a columnist for the Jerusalem Post and Times of Israel. You know, sometimes you get a rabbi who uh, thinks that they can speak politics. And sometimes you get a politician who thinks they can speak uh, Torah. <laughs> but sometimes you actually get someone who can speak from the inside of uh, government and also can speak from the inside of, uh, of our tradition as well. And Valley Beit Midrash has always prized our, prided ourselves on pluralism, religious pluralism. And Rabbi Littman has been a, a voice not only against extre uh, religious, religious extremism, but for a democratic society that values all parties. and um, and, and religious groups. So uh, this is an opportunity uh, uh, to learn with him. So thank you, Rabbi Lippmann, for joining us. Thank you so much, Rabbi Shmuley. It is so nice to see you. When you popped up on the screen, uh, a smile came across my face. I, I remember so fondly my visit to your uh, community. I actually remember, I think I came straight from New York and I landed there and just the quiet, slow, way of life. I commented to you right away. I said, this is a way of life uh, that I could get used to. It was just so uh, in tune to just being in touch with yourself and, and, and not getting lost in the chaos of the crazy world that we live in. And I also so much, so much enjoyed your community. And uh, let's hope with God's help, we can uh, get past this corona and hopefully I can be back in Arizona soon. Amen, amen. But when you find this calmer way of life in Arizona, send that to me because I'm looking for some of that too. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll also never forget how you took me to a restaurant there, a vegan restaurant that I was able to enjoy. It was soon after uh, I made that choice in my life and uh, you really just treated me with such oh, respect and uh, I, I look forward to coming back. Awesome, thank you so much. It's really great to see all of you and to be able to uh, share some Torah. Rabbi Shmuley is correct. A lot of my presentations are political in nature and trying to explain what's happening in Israel. And when I have the opportunity to actually share Torah and engage in a spiritual discussion, uh, it's something which I jump, I jump to do. I wasn't uh, a politician for a long time, but I've been involved in the Torah world for a lot longer, and I love uh, coming back to those roots. Uh, there is a source sheet that's available in the chat. If anyone doesn't see it, uh, please make sure to tap into it. But I'll also make sure to read out the sources uh, very clearly. So I remember growing up in Silver Spring, Maryland, I went to a Jewish day school. And Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israel Independence Day, we always wore a white shirt, blue pants, came to school. And to be honest with you, I, I didn't really connect very much to the day. The school that I went to, I remember very vividly, we'd go into the gymnasium and they would show a film strip. And the film strip started with an orange, an orange. And then they zoomed out and you saw people who we saw as people with very funny hats. They were chalutzim, the pioneers of Israel, working and planting a, 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 a orchard, 
And that was somehow supposed to connect us as young American children to Israel. And I wasn't so successful. And then one year we went in, we sat in the gymnasium, and we were ready for that same orange again. And then all of a sudden on the screen, it said, the Washington Bullets go to Israel. The Washington Bullets, which are now the Washington Wizards, were our home team basketball team. And the Washington Bullets went to Israel. And they showed us this video and we saw all of these basketball stars who we idolized as young American kids in Israel. We saw Elvin Hayes at the Kotel and Bobby Dandridge at Masada and Mitch Kupchak on a camel. And we were like, we love Israel. This is the most amazing thing ever. And then the next year we came back and we got into the gymnasium and the movie started and it was back to the orange again. And we were brought back to the Yom Hatzmut that we weren't so excited about. Why do I raise this story as an introduction? The story of what's happening in Israel over not just the last 72 years, but before that, is a story of such magnitude in terms of Jewish history and the forces that are working behind the scenes. I really do believe that we can get young children excited about it by just sharing that with them. We don't have to try to find any kind of gimmicks to connect them to it. Children want to see amazing things happen, happening. And if you put it into a historical context and share the sources, I truly believe that all of our children, all of our grandchildren can really connect to Israel. And we're putting all politics aside. There's space for political debate. There's space for discussion and even disagreement. And I'm all for that. As the rabbi said, pluralism, we can agree, uh, that we can agree to disagree. We can disagree agreeably, respectfully and we can have really healthy debates. But there are certain things that all of us can really agree, really agree, uh, it's taking place right now in Israel, and that's what this shiur, that's what this session is really gonna be all about. And please, uh, when we're finished, there'll be time for questions. I welcome those questions, so just make some notes for yourself along the way, and I'll be happy to try to answer them. There's this big question that's out there. We say a prayer for the state of Israel, every Shabbat, it's said around the world. And there's a phrase which is said in that prayer where we essentially define the state of Israel as reshit tzmichat geulatenu, the beginning of the flourishing of our redemption. We know that we do have in our tradition the concept of reaching messianic times, this glorious time when the world will be filled with peace and harmony and love and all of us can together uh, worship God and be spiritual people. And we certainly pray for that time and yearn for that time, but we specifically define the state of Israel as the beginning of the flourishing of that redemption. And there's some controversy about that from all sides. Do we have the right to say this event, this story, is the beginning of the redemption. God will bring the redemption and bring this peace to the world when the time is supposed to come. But how do we know when that time is coming? Now, I will emphasize to you that the, the phrase that we say, it doesn't say this is the redemption. We say it's the beginning of the flourishing of the final redemption. So with that in mind, let's look at some of the sources that we have in our tradition that actually talk about uh, what will happen as we approach the time of that redemption and that time 
of peace, which we so desperately seek. We'll start with source number one. Source number one is from Vayikra, Perak Chavav, in Leviticus chapter 26, where God says, I will bring the land into desolation. The Hebrew word is Bahashimoti, and your enemies that dwell there will be astonished by it. God says that while the Jewish people are exiled from the land of Israel, the land of Israel is going to remain desolate. Nothing will be able to grow there. It says it in the Torah outright. It's pretty remarkable. And in source number two, the Midrash actually says that while this verse appears amidst curses, negative things that are happening to the Jewish people, source number two says this is a positive for the Jewish people. It's positive that the land will remain desolate, that nothing will grow while we're in exile, because they shouldn't say, we were exiled from our land, and now all of our enemies have come and they're enjoying the land. Other nations that try to build it after we leave will not be able to enjoy it. And says Rabbeinu Bachai, in the commentaries on the Chumash, he says, but all the nations will try to build it in source number three, and they won't have the ability, and this is a great sign for Israel. What an amazing prophecy that we find in the Torah where it says that while we're in exile, nothing will be able to grow there. And the commentaries say that the undoing of that, when things start to grow again, that is a sign that things are happening in this land and we're heading towards our redemption. And you have to really read the words of the prophets straight out to really see this. Look, for example, at source number four, where the prophet Yechezkel, where Ezekiel says in chapter uh, Lamed Vav 36, but oh, you mountains of Israel, you shall give forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are soon to come. Yechezkel tells us that the land of Israel will start to grow again, even though it's been desolate and nothing has grown there for all the thousands of years that we've been in exile, says the prophet, don't worry about it. The time is going to come when things will start to grow again because the people of Israel are returning. Source number five, Isaiah, Yeshaya, Nun Aleph, chapter 51, says, beautiful, beautiful words, for the Lord has comforted Zion. He has made her wilderness like an Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Again, the contrast, while we're in exile, nothing can grow here. We come back. All of a sudden, the land of Israel becomes this garden of Eden. And perhaps the most clear out of all the sources about this topic is source number six, where the Navi, the prophet Amos, says these beautiful words in chapter nine. Just listen to these words, it's just so poetic and so beautiful. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, and I will return the captivity of my people Israel. They shall build the desolate cities and they will inhabit them. They will plant vineyards, they will drink the wine, and they will make gardens and they'll eat those fruits. And I will plant them upon their land and they shall not be uprooted out of their land, which I have given them says the Lord your God. Just an amazing description of what's going to happen as the Jewish people return to the land of Israel. Thousands of years of desolation, and then all of a sudden, 
the re-flourishing again. And if you turn from the prophets to the Talmud, you'll actually see some of these teachings even more clearly. For example, source number seven, a tractate Sanhedrin, where it says, Rabbi Abba states, the clearest sign of the redemption is the fruits of Israel growing again. Remember, this is said thousands of years ago, but the rabbis, the sages taught, the time is going to come when the land of Israel will flourish again, and that, he says, is the greatest sign of the redemption coming. It says Rashi, the great medieval commentator, in source number eight, on that line in the Talmud, when the land of Israel gives forth its fruits in abundance, the end of exile is near, and there's no clearer sign than the, of the end of the exile. Just a straight-out teaching saying that just the reflourishing of the land of Israel, that in and of itself is a sign of the redemption on the way. We have the Shemona Esrei prayer, the silent Amidah that we say uh, three times a day. We say it on Shabbat. We say it on the holidays. But on the weekday prayer, there are 19 blessings that we say. And the Talmud explains what is the sequence. Why does each blessing follow the blessing before it? And in source number nine, the Talmud teaches in Megillah, page 17b, why did they say the blessing of the ingathering of the exiles after the blessing on the fruits of Israel? First, we begin, we have a bracha where we ask God, please give forth rain, let there be fruits, let the crops grow in the land of Israel. And right after that, we say the words, we ask God to bring in the exiles, the captives from all around the world. Why does that blessing follow the previous one? Says the Talmud in source number nine, because the verse says, but you, O mountains of Israel, shall give forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are soon to come. These, the sequence of these blessings is very deliberate. We ask God for the fruits to grow in Israel, and immediately afterwards, we shift to the final redemption and the Jewish people returning to the land of Israel. And some of the later commentaries, Rabbi Akiva Eger, as an example, he says, if we succeed in growing fruits in Israel, the final redemption is imminent. So let's take a step back for a moment and look at the history. 2,000 years ago, we're exiled from this land. Let's always remind ourselves why, not because of the strength of the Roman legions, but because of Sinat Chinam, because we couldn't get along with each other as a Jewish people. And it's in our hands to try to rectify that and work on Avat Chinam, and loving each other, loving all of mankind, creating a world where people can live and with tolerance and coexistence. Let's remember why the temple was destroyed and we went to exile, but we went into exile for thousands of years. And during those thousands of years, just as the Torah said, the land of Israel remained completely desolate and great conquerors tried to take over this land. They wanted it for very strategic reasons for military purposes, for trade purposes. Israel connects three continents. They all wanted this land, and none of them were successful in growing anything in this land. It remained a marshland, and just a frustration for anyone who tried to build it up for 2,000 years. If you look for a moment at the next source, source number 10, it's an amazing passage that Mark Twain wrote 
in an article called, in a journal called Innocence Abroad. He wrote it in 1867 about his travels around the world. And he went through the Middle East and he came to the land of Israel, which was called Palestine. Listen to what he writes, 1867. We're not talking about so long ago. He writes, of all the lands that are for dismal scenery, I think Palestine must be the prince. The hills are barren. They are dull of color. They are unpicturesque in shape. The valleys are unsightly deserts fringed with a feeble vegetation that has an expression about it of being sorrowful and despondent. It is hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. Listen to these words about the land of Israel. He says, small shreds and patches of it must be very beautiful in the full flush of spring, however, and all the more beautiful by contrast with the far-reaching desolation that surrounds them on every side. But now here's the key paragraph. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of a curse that has withered its field and fettered its energies. Renowned Jerusalem itself, the stateliest name in history, has lost its ancient grandeur and has become a pauper village. The wonderful temple, which was the pride and the glory of Israel, is gone. The noted Sea of Galilee was long ago deserted by the devotees of war and commerce, and its borders are a silent wilderness. And he ends off, Palestine is desolate and unlovely. Just fast forward 100 years from then, and look where we are today, not so long after that, a land which is flourishing everywhere, the most beautiful landscape you can find, filled with fruits, trees, flowers, vegetation everywhere. Unbelievable what's happening. And according to all the sources that we have, that is a sign that the final redemption is on its way. And let's think about who planted these vineyards and who drained the swamps. A bunch of refugees coming from all around the world. And they were able to do this, fulfilling the words of the prophets. It's an unbelievable thing to take a step back and think about this for a moment. And I really do believe that if we just stopped tonight right here, we could all say with confidence that what we're experiencing today in the state of Israel is at the very least the beginning of the flourishing of the final redemption. Doesn't mean that the redemption is coming tomorrow. We certainly have a lot of work to do on our front in terms of what I said before, healing the wounds between our people and society. And if we're gonna try to do our part to bring final redemption and peace, we have to work on that. But there's no doubt that there's a process that's in place where God is doing his part, so to speak, to fulfill these prophecies about the ingathering, about the reflourishing of the land of Israel to prepare Israel for the Jews to be coming back. So that's step one that we wanted to focus on, just the reflourishing of the fruits of Israel themselves. Let's go for a moment, though, to source 11 and take it a step further. Source number 11 is a sukim in Sefer Dvarim, in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 30, where it says as follows, Then the Lord your God will return your captivity, will have compassion on you, and will return and gather you from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Right on the heels of the exile, God says, I'll bring you back. If any of you are dispersed at the end of the heavens, the Lord, will, the Lord your God will gather you from there 
and from there he will take you. And Lord God will bring you to the land which your forefathers possessed. You shall possess it, and he will do good for you and multiply you more than your fathers. The Torah says straight out that this time is going to be a time of the ingathering of the exiles. That is going to be part of the redemption process. If we switch again to the prophets, Isaiah in source number 12, chapter 11, Isaiah says, And he will raise a banner for the nations and will assemble the lost of Israel and gather together the scattered of Judah, of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Continuing this theme about the ingathering of the exiles. We continue in the prophet in Jeremiah, and Yahu in source number 13. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will return your captivity and gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I caused you to be carried away as captive. Finally, another prophecy, Ezekiel, Ezekiel in chapter 20 in source number 14. With your sweet savor, I will accept you when I bring you out from the nations and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will be sanctified through you before the eyes of the nations. And you will know, Ezekiel says, that I am the Lord when I bring you to the land of Israel and to the land which I lifted up my hand to give to your fathers. All of these prophecies talking about what we call the ingathering of the exiles, this time that will come that people always thought in the future as the final redemption plays out, when the people of Israel, when the Jews will return to the land of Israel. The Midrash, in source number 15, now return to the sages, says the following. Rabbi Abba Barkahana said, if you see the benches filled with Babylonians in the land of Israel, anticipate the footsteps of the Mashiach of the final redemption. When he talks about the Babylonians, he's talking about the Jews that are in exile. When you start seeing the land of Israel filled with those people, Jews returning, then you know we're in the footsteps of Mashiach. There are other commentaries that say just the ingathering of the exiles alone is a sign that the final redemption is coming. You know, I sat when I was a member of Knesset, the 19th Knesset, every single Monday at 2.30, we had a party meeting. Our, our faction would sit together. And I would just look around the room. And what did I see? I saw immigrants from the Middle East, from North Africa, from European countries, certainly the former Soviet Union, from Ethiopia, from English-speaking countries, Western countries. Literally, the ingathering of the exiles just sitting around the table in the Knesset. You just saw Jews who have come back to Israel from so many backgrounds, literally the way God describes it. I'll bring you from the four corners of the earth. We're now living in an amazing time where we're seeing other groups coming back. We have the Bnei Menashe from India who held on to a tradition, tradition for thousands of years while they were cut off from the rest of the Jewish population, but they held on to this dream of coming back to the land of Israel. Certainly the story of the Aliyah of the Ethiopian Jews, just unbelievable how they persevered and held on to this belief for thousands of years that they're going to come back to, they're going to come to Jerusalem. I actually was in Israel during Operation Solomon in the, early, uh, in the early 1990s, and I met with Ethiopian Jews who came to Israel. They were at the Diplomat Hotel in Jerusalem, and as a young yeshiva boy student, I went and met with them, and we had a translator who came in Operation Moses 
in the 1980s. And one of the new immigrants said, when do we get to see the big house? And I said, what? He was talking about the temple because they were exiled before the temple's destruction. He didn't even know that the temple was destroyed. He thought he was coming back to Israel to experience the temple and come back to a kingdom of Israel the way it used to be. But that's what they held on to for thousands of years. And now it's happening in front of our eyes. The ingathering of the exiles, the most incredible, incredible story of a people who for thousands of years believed that, and hoped and prayed and yearned that they would come back to their homeland and said twice a year at the most uh, incredible moments, the highest moments spiritually, on Yom Kippur and on Seder night, L'shana Habab Yerushalayim, and they meant it. And they really, in the worst of circumstances, while being persecuted, they believed it would happen. And now we're seeing it happen in front of our eyes. If, do we have to ask ourselves, is this the beginning of the flourishing of the redemption? The most incredible things are happening in front of our eyes. And we literally see these prophecies and the teachings of the Talmud, the Midrashim, playing out right before us. And that is the step of the beginning of the redemption. If you look at source number 16, Rabbi Arya Kaplan actually really echoes this point where he says as follows. He wrote this in 1976. Other generations have expected the Messiah's imminent appearance on the basis of forced interpretations of water-toot prophecies. Whereas we, he says, are living through the entire range of messianic tradition, often coming to pass with uncanny literalness. If you keep your eyes open, you can almost see every headline bringing us a step closer to this goal. What an amazing thing. Just open up the newspaper and see what's happening. And by the way, if you see what's happening even today with the recent agreements, and I'm not going to get into any kind of a broader political discussion, but no one can discount the fact that all of a sudden Israel is engaging in these agreements with the United Arab Emirates, with Bahrain, with Sudan, and with all the complexities that are involved, and we can have those debates at another time, but there's a wind of reconciliation that's taking place as people are starting to recognize a Jewish state in the land of Israel. There are things that are happening, just opening up the newspaper, as Rabbi Kaplan said, and you can see these remarkable things happen. You know, 1967, Six-Day War is perhaps the greatest example of that, where Jews in Israel who were, who were incredibly secular, we're going to come back to that topic in a moment, there was an awakening that took place where they realized there are other forces that are happening over here because there's just no way to explain what's happening in a military way. And they basically saw open miracles taking place. This is all part of that process of redemption. So what's the counter-argument? to what I'm saying. There are people who are out there who will say, you should not say those words about the beginning of the flourishing of the redemption. So what would they say to counter that? So very often, the counter argument that I hear if I'm engaged in discussions is, state of Israel is overwhelmingly secular. It's not religious in nature. People uh, do not observe 
of the rituals in, in any kind of a uh, majority type of way. Certainly the founders uh, of the state of Israel, people, by the way, who I revere for what they've done, and they have many merits for building this incredible state. But it's very clear if you study the history, they were not uh, observant Jews. Uh, in some cases, they weren't even believing Jews in terms of believing in God. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there was a controversy when the state of Israel was founded about the Declaration of Independence. And there was a debate about whether or not God should be mentioned in the Israeli uh, Declaration of Independence. And the secular side didn't want to have it. The religious side clearly wanted to have it. And they came to a compromise. And in the Declaration of Independence, it says, Swar Yisrael, the rock of Israel which the religious side can say refers to God, because we at times do refer to God as the rock of Israel. The secular side can say that refers to the army, other elements of society. That was a great compromise, which was made, and is a great example of how we can work together. But either way, they didn't put God there. So people say, how could this be the beginning of the final redemption? God wasn't involved in the founding of the state of Israel. The people who did so, the people who built this, state didn't believe in God. How is it possible, they say, that a group of secular people can possibly be part of a process that's leading towards redemption? My friends, there are such simple answers to that question by, again, just studying our history. Let's look, for example, at source number 17. The Jewish people, as we know, were redeemed from Egypt, what we celebrate on Passover, the whole story of the book of Exodus. And there, in Exodus chapter 12, Rashi, the great commentator, says that they had no mitzvot in their hands to merit redemption. The Jewish people, when they were in the land of Egypt, they didn't have ritual observance. There was no Torah yet. But not only that, they were steeped in idolatry. These were people who had a few things that were taught, and according to our sages, that were their, 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 their saving grace, which gave them the chance to have redemption. But they were steeped in idolatry. They had no Torah observance whatsoever, and yet God brought about the redemption. If we fast forward to another redemption, to the time when we return to Israel to rebuild the temple for the second temple, in source number 18, in the book of Ezra, chapter 9, it describes what the people were like at the time that the second temple was built and we were redeemed from exile. They had taken some of the daughters as wives for themselves. There was widespread intermarriage and mingled the holy race nations of land. There, there was, there was, the Jewish people were lost. They were lost in exile. So much so that look at source number 19, where Nehemiah teaches us, they didn't even know the Torah. They didn't know anything. They were lost. By the way, many people ask, how is that possible as historical fact? that they would forget everything in 70 years. They would exile for just 70 years. We don't have to have that question anymore because we can look at what happened to our brothers and sisters in the former Soviet Union and see how in 70 years, you could just forget everything. And three generations down the road, they do not know anything about Torah and mitzvot. And obviously it's our obligation uh, to try to teach them uh, about their heritage and teach them Torah. But they opened up the Torah. They found written the Torah, which God commanded them through Moses. Look at source number 19 again, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of seventh month. 
they did not know about the holiday of Sukkot, something which all of us know about. We have Rosh Hashanah, then we have Yom Kippur, then there's the holiday of Sukkot. They didn't know about it. That's how lost they were. And yet God brought them back and God enabled them to rebuild the second temple. Source number 20, Tractate Sanhedrin, Rabbi Yochanan taught the son of David will come in a generation that is completely merited or completely corrupt. There's no source that says that we have to be the holiest people on earth, the most spiritually and religiously observant on earth to bring about the final redemption. And we see all of these sources which clearly say that it's not the case. All there has to be is some merit, something about us where God can say, this people are now deserving of the final redemption. And I'm going to harp on this point because I do it wherever I speak. To me, it's very clear what that point has to be. And again, I come back to that idea of avat chinam, of the unity of our people and making sure that we find a way to be tolerant and get along with one another. But there are those who will say, you're, you're misleading the people who are following the class right now. Because in the time of the redemption from Egypt, who was the leader? It was Moses. So he was this holy person who was able to take them out. In the time of the rebuilding of the second temple, who was it? It was Ezra, this great leader. So maybe the people, the nation weren't on the level, but their leaders were. And how can you possibly draw a parallel then to the founding of the state of Israel where the leaders weren't necessarily the way we define holiness based on spiritual ritual observance? There are so many sources which show that even at times when our leaders were people who were specifically unholy, as we'll see in a moment, where they were actually evil and sinners, nevertheless, we were blessed with redemption. What's one example? Source number 21 in the book of Kings, chapter 16. It says straight out, we're talking now about the time of King Ahab, Ahab, it says, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Yeravim ben Avat, he married Jezebel, a daughter of the king of the Sidonians. He began to serve the Baal. He was idolatrous. He was idolatrous. And so bad, Talmud says in source number 22, there are four people in history who don't have a portion in the world to come, and three of them were kings, and one of them was King Acha. And nevertheless, despite the fact that he is identified as someone who was pagan, who was rebellious, who, again, this very difficult statement to understand, but no possibility of the world to come. And source number 23, it says that came along and said, he's going to be able to defeat this army. I will give it into your hand today. I will help you have great victories. And there are numerous sources, one after another, which show kings, who were wicked in nature. Look, for example, at source number 25, where it says that Omri, who was a wicked king, did bad in the eyes of the Lord, worse than all of those before him. And listen to what it says in source number 26, in tractate Sanhedrin, Rabbi Yochanan taught, why did Omri merit to be king and he had all kinds of victories? Because he added on a city to the land of Israel. Omri was a king who added on a city to the land of Israel, and because he did so, he merited to have great victories. Do you know why Omri added on cities to the land of Israel? 
because he wanted to distract the people from Jerusalem. That was his reason for doing so. And nevertheless, he's rewarded for building cities in the land of Israel. Think now for a moment about the secular founders of the state of Israel, how they built up cities and built up this land. They don't have a merit to be part of the process of redemption. It's so clear that we leave that into the hands of God and you can't make judgments about who is holy, who is not holy, who is deserving of redemption, uh, and who is not. And amazingly, the Jewish people themselves asked this question. Look for a moment at source number 27. The people of Israel asked God, all the miracles that you did for me via Koresh, wouldn't it have been better to do them via Daniel or another righteous person? It should have been done through somebody else. Why are you doing it through people who are not righteous? And says the Radak, one of the great commentators on the prophets in source number 28, salvation is solely in the hands of God. He brings it about through mortals, as he did with Cyrus during the Babylonian exile, and in the future as well. God will bring about redemption through Gentile kings, through kings who we might not see as the holiest, the process of, of the final redemption is very complicated and very complex and doesn't always happen the way we would imagine that it should happen. Look for a moment at source number 31. Source number 31 shows a series of relationships that lead to the birth of the Messiah according to our tradition. It starts with the story of Lot having relations with his daughters obviously something which is completely promiscuous and immoral, but that leads to the birth of the nation of Moab, where Ruth is going to come from, and Ruth is going to be a great-grandmother to King David, who is ultimately the father of the Messiah. We have the relationship of Yehuda and Tamar, where Yehuda thinks Tamar is a prostitute and has a relationship with her. Things that to us would seem to be so unholy. King David and Bathsheba, which ultimately leads to the birth of King Solomon and the continuity of King David. Things don't always happen the way that we would imagine that it should happen. And actually the Maharal, we go to source number 32 towards the end of the sources, actually says the Messianic king will establish a new kingdom which will emerge from the first kingdom that will precede it. This is so because the Holy Kingdom of Israel, which has an inherent divine status, sprouts from an unsanctified kingdom. The Maral says a few hundred years ago, he writes, first there has to be what we would call an unsanctified kingdom. And from that kingdom comes the kingdom of the final redemption, for this benefit befits a kingdom that has divine and inherent nature. All these commentaries are making it very clear. The fact that people who we see as possibly being unholy, again, we shouldn't be making those judgments anyway, that's not a reason to suggest that the state of Israel is not the beginning of the final redemption. We have seen the sources so clearly, the reflourishing of the land of Israel, the ingathering of the exiles, our tradition teaches us those are clear signs that we're experiencing the process of the final redemption. And any questions about the leaders countering that really don't hold any weight whatsoever. We are blessed to live in, in incredible times where incredible things are happening. And I truly believe, I truly believe that we have the ability to inspire our children.
to recognize that this is happening. Open up those prophets and show them the prophecies that are coming true before our eyes, both about the reflourishing of the land and the ingathering of the exiles. And what an opportunity we have now to, as we have a state of Israel, for it to be a platform for so much good in the world and perhaps fulfill the other prophecies about our becoming a light onto the nations. This is an amazing opportunity that we have. And remarkably, whereas today there seems to be a rift in Israel where one could say that generally the, the ultra-Orthodox populations might not see Israel as a step in the final redemption and might even have uh, strong issues with the state of Israel and uh, the, its secular nature. If you look at source number 35, source number 35, Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank, who was the spiritual leader of the ultra-Orthodox community in Jerusalem, he said straight out that the founding of the state of Israel was the beginning of the redemption. That's the quote. In source number 36, I quote, uh, the following rabbis, all from the ultra-Orthodox community, when the state of Israel was founded, who signed a letter, Rabbi Ovadi Yosef, Rabbi Chatzkel Sarna, Rabbi Zalman Serotsky, Rabbi Shalom Zalman Arbach, and he called it the first buds of the beginning of the redemption through the establishment of the state of Israel. They saw it because they were living the history. And they saw a few years after the Holocaust, this taking place. And they were able to have the wisdom to say, this is clearly a major step towards the final redemption because God is actually fulfilling prophecies in our times and there's no way to deny that. And by the way, when I referenced the secular nature of the state of Israel when it was founded, if you fast forward now 72 years, it's a very different country. It's a very different country. And even though a majority of Israel still identify themselves as secular, they are so religiously observant in terms of Friday night, they light candles, Kiddush, Hanukkah candles, certainly Passover, fasting on Yom Kippur. It's a part of the culture here in Israel, which they're part of. Shavuot night, tens of thousands of people who call themselves secular, who stay up all night to be able to study Torah. If we were writing Declaration of Independence today in Israel, there is no doubt there would be a consensus to have God mentioned there. That's also part of the process. As the people of Israel become more spiritual, each one in his own way, and connect more to our traditions. So to simply answer the question, is the state of Israel the beginning of the flourishing of the redemption? I think we can say very concretely, yes. And I do believe this is a message which we should be transferring to our children as we excite them about Israel. It's not just about the ability to defend ourselves and no longer uh, be at the whims of the nations of the world to be persecuted. And it's not just the fact that we're returning to a land which we can call ours, but there's a destiny here, according to the prophets and all of our tradition, and we are all blessed to be living in a time where we can see that destiny taking place, and that ultimately uh, is the greatest blessing for all of us. So I thank all of you uh, for being here and listening, and now we'll open up the floor uh, if you have questions. Thank us. you, Rabdov. Rabdov, thank you so much, and uh, very fascinating, uh, inspiring. And uh, yeah, we want to open up the floor for uh, questions, comments, uh, agreements, disagreements. And I know Judy uh, is going uh, to share something first. I also see Stan has posted something in the chat. So Judy, uh, Judy, go for it. Okay. Uh, if if in, in the Torah, God warns us against having a king, 
And if God only acts on earth at this point through human beings, maybe the Mashiach is all of us. There's no doubt, Judy, that, you know, exactly what Mashiach is, is, is very open to uh, discussion and debate. And there are a lot of different philosophies uh, in terms of what it actually means. Uh, I would definitely say the general consensus in our tradition is that there will actually be a human being from a descendant from King David who will emerge as king, but a king in the most a benevolent way, uh, someone who exudes love and inspiration and, and bringing the people together, a person who doesn't just have an impact on the Jewish people, but has an impact on the entire world. Uh, but again, I do definitely agree with your comment that we as a people have a very significant role to lead towards that place. And it is the people who can produce such a person. Uh, and that's certainly the way it seems to be playing out as a natural process instead of some miraculous moment where this king automatically appears. The commentaries talk about, uh, you know, a, there'll be a government, uh, there'll be a leader, and it'll merge. And certainly the state of Israel and having a government of Israel and a Knesset of Israel and the whole process that we have definitely lends itself to the possibility of a time coming where a great leader emerges that everyone can truly uh, rally around. I um I can Rabbi Shmuley I can ask my question. Oh great, go for it, Stan. Thank you. Sure. And let me thank you. This is a rich uh, source material. I so appreciate you digging around and getting all of that from the the halachic materials and the Rashik, not just the Tanakh. Um, I'm coming off of just watching again the movie The Chosen. So forgive me this historical question coming right out of it, thinking. When did the transition happen when Orthodox Jews in North America made this transition from being so resistant to the early Zionists in the 20th century to going so far as to insert a prayer for the state of Israel into the Siddur? I, I thought up to this point it was just more of a practical nature. Here's a place, a Jewish home, but I didn't realize that there was this degree among many modern Orthodox. The, the, um, the, uh, it, it, it's a great... It's a great Right. Although, I, granted, Jews are still divided. You still have some of the Hasidic groups that are so anti-Zionist. When did this transition predominantly take place? And what it's left? very interesting. It's very interesting. Study the history. Uh, let's just go back for a moment. The first people to actually come as a group and settle in Israel was actually in the late 18th century. Students of the Vilna Gaon and the Baal Shem Tov, which is very interesting because they were groups that were opposed to one another, the Hasidic group and the more Lithuanian group. Uh, they came to Israel to live very spiritual lives. Uh, they were not working the land. It wasn't an agricultural society. They weren't here to build a state. They were studying Torah, praying, and they were supported uh, by mostly European Jewry in a system that was called the Chalukah. And then, very interestingly, in the 19th century, the first groups that were actually making a move, and this is way before Herzl, they were making a group, a movement towards Israel, were actually people who identified themselves as religious Zionists, you know, Orthodox Zionists, who said, we have to help bring about the coming of the Messiah by returning to Israel. And a little bit of a later point, uh, those who were not religious, the more secular, uh, certainly got very involved from a nationalistic perspective in the building of the state of, of Israel. 
very interesting. The very beginning of the of the reform movement, uh, they were not in favor of uh, the Zionistic movement, and they felt that we have to be uh, close to our uh, and patriots in whatever lands we're living, and not to be seeking uh, some other place to live as the ideal. I think what has happened is over time, all the various groups, with the exception, with the exception of the very very extreme. Uh, in the Hasidic community, as you mentioned, in the Naturik Karta and Satmar, and that's really not uh, a large group percentage-wise uh, of our people. Over time, people have come to realize exactly what we just talked about uh, tonight, and that is the magnitude of what is happening over here. And it, you know, in the in the more religious circles, uh, even the, the the spirituality that's available, the amount of Torah study that's taking place in Israel, people seeing the open miracles of 1948, fighting off armies that were so many times greater than we were. 1967, the Six-Day War, even though on Yom Kippur War in 1973, we were on the verge of defeat, but again, pushing back the surrounding uh, countries. And then war in Lebanon, uh, but before that, peace with Egypt, then peace with Jordan, and now we're talking about more, there's a process here which is really on a certain level unfathomable to realize where we are today, to see where Israel is today in terms of its strength, in terms of its prosperity, with all of its challenges. And I do not mean to sweep any of those away. Uh, there's an, a story here which, which has never been told in world history of a people returning to their indigenous homeland and, and rebuilding it the way that we've been managed to do in Israel. So I think all the various groups started seeing that and they realized this is something which we really have to be part of. This is not some small, insignificant story, but rather this is a story about the destiny of the Jewish people. And that's why more and more have been joining in. Now about the prayer, I want to be very clear. There's no doubt that the modern Orthodox, the religious Zionist community uh, says that prayer. Uh, there are definitely circles, I would say, in the more yeshiva world, as they call it, in the ultra-Orthodox world, where uh, some, and hopefully most, would say a prayer for the soldiers. Prayer for the state of Israel is still too political. That's because we politicized uh, the whole na nature of Israel, and therefore they do not make that statement of the beginning of the final redemption. But I think if you sat with someone in a room and presented these sources, it would be very difficult for them to say, this is not uh, the, the process that I described before uh, during the Shi'or. But it's been very interesting to see how the history has played out and how more and more groups have come to be, to be part of it and to recognize the magnitude of what's happening in Israel today. Rabbi Lippman, so I, um, I, I really love the Jewish people and I really think we are crucial to the world. Um, and not only do I just love as a subjective experience, I think objectively our contributions are unique and powerful and concrete. Um, I also, um, uh, as I'm sure you as well, don't love ideas that seem to suggest kind of a, um, uh, a Jewish supremacy of some type. Um, and so I wonder like, how does our, how does our uh, redemption theology reflect universalism as well? In so in that, in that Jews are, we have a central bit here, but there's also kind of a broader thing happening, whether it's democracy or poverty. I wonder, like, what's the, what, what, like, what's the broader interplay there as well? I, I absolutely appreciate the question. And I always tell people, we talk about the Hebrew word is am which is defined as chosen people. 
I think there's a, there's a lot of misinterpretation of what that means. I view it as a people who have a responsibility. It's not higher than someone else. It's not better than someone else, but it's a people who have been charged with a mission to bring God and bring spirituality and bring goodness to the world. Uh, and that's, by the way, to a certain degree, we've accomplished that through so the Judeo-Christian ethic, the concept that people you know, out there talk about uh, the Ten Commandments so openly and the idea of a moral and civil society. But when we talk about the final redemption, and I'm so happy that you brought this up so that there shouldn't be any misunderstanding, this is not a Jewish people uh, experience something in their land, and that's the end of the story. The concept really is for a worldwide revolution to take place where the world all of a sudden is filled with goodness and kindness and, and, and people acting as they should uh, one to the other and harmony. Uh, that's the ultimate prophecy over here. I mean, just think about for a moment the glory of a world where you know, there was a spirituality, uh, where people also recognized how to act towards one another. We're supposed to uh, help bring that to the world. And by the way, even today, this is where I feel that to a large degree we, we, we're failing as a people because I, I don't think people see us as the model society. Uh, and Israel is such a great opportunity for it. Think about it for a moment. The whole world is looking at us, is always judging us and watching us. And imagine if in Israel, we were able to create a society which was truly one of, of our vut, of being responsible for one another, making sure that no one is left behind, everyone has what they need, uh, no discrimination, no racism, everyone being treated equally. And then the world could look to us in Israel and say, that's the way society is supposed to be. And that modeling then becomes the inspiration for the rest of the world. That's the ultimate dream uh, in terms of Mashiach. It's not limited to the experience of the Jewish people, but rather it is to have that influence uh, over the entire world. And remember, I, I love the fact that when we pray on Rosh Hashanah and, and Yom Kippur, uh, it is not about the Jewish people. We're talking about the entire world over and over again. We talk about this concept, and that's something we always have to remember, that even if we talk about Messiah and redemption, yes, it is redemption for us from exile, from persecution, from the horrible suffering that we've gone through, but that's not the end to itself. It's to then enable us to be that inspiration to the world and bring God's message of goodness and faith and light uh, to the rest of the world. Awesome, awesome. Is there one more, one final question or thought? Let's give it a second. Thank you so much to everyone for the, for the beautiful comments and feedback. Uh, I, I thank you so much uh, for, for joining and, and for, for being a part of this. And uh, I'll just say before I give it to Rabbi Shmuley to, to I guess, close, uh, everyone keep, keep doing the wonderful work uh, that you're doing, certainly Rabbi Shmuley, and uh, that's all of us, uh, certainly for Israel, for the Jewish people, and then by extension for the world. Uh, keep on trying uh, to do what we can do uh, to make the world a better place, certainly to stand up uh, for Israel. Like I said, we can have our debates and have our discussions, uh, but we can also unify about around the things that should hopefully bring us all together. And I thank you for the opportunity to be able to share some words of Torah with you tonight.
Well, you know, I often say most Jews pick one of the three, Torah Israel, they like Judaism, Am Yisrael, they like Jewish people, or Eretz Yisrael, they like the land. They're like, why the other two? Nah. You, you really embody the commitment to all three, your, your love of the land, your love of, of Jewish wisdom, and your take responsibility for the Jewish people around the world to ensure we're all a part of this uh, journey together. So wishing you continued blessings in your good work. And thank you all for joining us. We look forward to continuing to learn with us. We have Rabbi Erwin Kula on Wednesday at one o'clock, Beyond Polarization, Judaism, and the Public Culture. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you so much, everybody. Bye-bye.